Well, thank you for tuning in to the Small Business Sit Down. I'm Jeff Fox with Star Fox Media, and today we have David Knoll of the David Knoll Foundation. The Helen Knoll Foundation. Of the, he- the Helen Knoll Foundation. You know, I, you know, I asked you before you just did. to make sure, <laughs> and I still did it wrong. That's right. That's right. Well, thanks for being here today. Mm-hmm. Thanks for taking the time to sit down with us. Uh, it's my pleasure. So I usually like to start off with, you know, your background and you know how it is that you got to where you are today. So when you were a kid, what, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I had um, my sights on a professional uh, baseball career. My dad mm-hmm. had played uh, for the San Diego Padres down in 1940. And being the youngest of five kids, I got the resources of my parents when they were a little older but also the benefit of an older brother that was able to push me along. So all through Little League and um, through high school, I was always the ahead of the, head of the curve. So had a lot of grooming towards that, uh, towards that direction. So that was, that was the major uh, focus of my life. That and Boy Scouts were mm. the two sports. The dream. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. actually, uh, I did Boy Scouts. I did, well, I did Cub Scouts. And I only did one year of Boy Scouts. But I also played baseball through Little League and Pony and Colt and all those and mm-hmm. so that's that's awesome. That's um, a lot of fun. And so your your professional baseball career. I mean, I was gonna say like you know that's kind of a, a long reach for a lot of people. But since you know it was in your family, you probably knew exactly what it took. Yeah, and and but when it really changed was when I chose to go to college rather than play professional ball out of high school because back in the seventies. Uh, a college player wasn't rated as well as a a player that had already been playing four years in the minor leagues. So, um, so that that really changed the the trajectory a lot. But I was still able to play for a year and a half in the, the Chicago Cubs uh, minor leagues organization, and and so got to live the life uh, for for a year and a half and to experience what making six hundred dollars a month meant in the minor leagues and bus rides and. Uh, dealing with all the fun things, and the and the kind of the funny thing was is that I was one of the few guys on my team that had a college education, so the only person I could really talk to was the trainer. Uh, so because he was college educated, most of the players wanted to just talk about, you know, what how are they doing on the baseball field, what the big um, club was doing, maybe who you were with the night before. So it wasn't a very uh, uh, stimulating. Uh, from an academic point of view, but playing uh, baseball, you 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 play for seven hours and you have 17 hours to keep yourself out of trouble when you're in the minor leagues. So, you know, I, I got to experience that. Um, but it was really the choice from when I chose to go college route rather than the uh, the pro route. Well, what, what was it that you studied in college? What took you away from baseball? I, I studied biology. Um, I had a great uh, high school mentor that was a biology teacher, and he taught for over 50 years. So when I taught back at the school, my high school, he was still teaching, so we were able to you know, connect back up again. But I was in biological sciences, but I wasn't one to follow the medical pathway because everybody in biological sciences is pre-med. Right. And so I was more in the organismal um, zoology, uh, little did I know it was kind of a precursor to learning about, uh, cancer and, and from the foundation. So there was kind of the, the glimpse of that. I actually even took a class on, uh, on cancer and, uh, had done some research in 
uh, molecular biology at the Sydney Farber Cancer Institute. Hmm. So all those things were kind of little starts to that would come together later when we started the foundation. Hmm. But it started in in college, and the same thing with my uh, photography career kind of started at that at that point. Sounds like you had a lot going on back in college. So. Well, it was it was it was, uh, and I was three thousand miles away from home, and so the first Christmas. My parents asked me what I wanted, and I already had my baseball bat and my glove, so I was I was fine with that. Um, so I asked for a camera, thirty-five millimeter camera, and my mom gave me a hundred dollars. She goes, "You can either buy your own camera, new, and put your own money, or buy a used one." And so I bought a used one, and I figured by the time that camera fell apart, I had earned about eighteen thousand dollars with that with that camera. So it was a uh, it was a a start of a career that I did not anticipate, but it allowed me a lot of freedom to do the things that I enjoyed doing. It's very interesting. So, so you're, you know, were you still in college? Were you still thinking that you wanted to play baseball professionally? Because, I mean, it sounds like you did a little bit, you did minors well, I, afterwards. I was on the varsity for four years. Yeah. So I was, um, and we went to the NC2A playoffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was... We were, I was on that trajectory and, and got to fulfill that for a year and a half. But uh, the photography kind of came along, and it was kind of a, a, funny, a funny story because I found somebody that could teach me how to take pictures in college. Because up to uh, when I was in high school, I was always on the other side of the camera. They were pictures taken when I was playing football or, or baseball or that type of uh, experience. But then when... I found somebody that could teach me. He said, David, I'll make you a deal. He says, if you join the yearbook, he says, I'll teach you how to use your camera. You'll have unlimited film. You'll have unlimited dark room. And you'll have a refrigerator full of beer at your disposal. That sounds and like that quite was, the deal. That was, <laughs> I might actually need deal. to start thinking, rethinking my career. Yeah. That's, that actually sounds pretty nice. And so by the time I, I graduated, I had over 70 pictures in the yearbook. And, nice. and and so as we've had different reunions over the years, because we just had our 40th, was that they would use the pictures from the yearbook mm. as a way of our collective class identity. Right. And who took the pictures from that identity were, was me, and it was pictures of my friends, uh, my professors, my experiences, old girlfriends are in, in those pictures. And so it was... Little did I know that photography was going to be such a big part of, of my life that, uh, uh, that I could earn a living by doing it. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was just a, a great way to get into photography in a very easy way and then go out and then have the, the bona fides enough that I could make it into a profession for over 35 years. That's very interesting. So how did you... like? Was that yearbook experience enough where you're just like, you know what, I want to be a professional photographer right out of college? Um, was it was was it some time after that where it, it was more of a hobby at the time? You just enjoyed it. Like, wh- what was the what was the thought when you were when you bought the camera, did the yearbook class, and were were enjoying taking all those photos? Yeah, I thought it was just more of a college. It would be college type of thing. But when one of the things when I was supplemented when I was playing in the minor leagues is the the players would come to me and go would you take pictures that I could send back to my family? 
And so I was, you know, and I would charge him $10 for, you know, 15, you know, beer money or something in that category. But I, I got the feel of, of selling my work and what that experience uh, was. And then I, I joined a, a photography contest in Sarasota, Florida, and won a photography contest. And one of the things was that they interviewed me and they had a full spread in their uh, Sunday paper. And so I really started to see the power of photography. In college, I was able to meet presidential candidates. I was able to meet uh, celebrities. I was able to be in my first musical as a result of being the photographer for that, uh, for that production. And so I learned that the power of an image and what mm-hmm. it could do and what it could, uh, what it could, uh, what it could mean and then when I was done playing uh, professional baseball and I was in uh, graduate school for biology and civil engineering, a friend of mine came up and said, well, would you photograph my friend's wedding? And I go, sure, why not? I feel like that's always the gateway drug. It is, it is. <laughs> well, weddings, because they're, they're so easy to market and there's a time and a date and, and it's something that you do. You don't have to, to really push for it. It kind of comes your way. And uh, so in my 35-year career, and it's still doing photography now, I was able to uh, get to the level of a uh, professional uh, uh, master photography from Professional Photographers of America, which, which was the um, preeminent organization for professional photographers. And less than 5% of all professional photographers ever got to the level of a master photographer. Mm. And so that became a big part of my identity in that, in that part. But little did I know when I first started that I had any artistic or any creative bones in my body. It actually sounds kind of <laughs> the opposite of, you know, you're a biology major, right? Mm-hmm. So you're like a scientist and you're also a photographer. So it's like that, that, like, like that logic center, right brain, left brain, right, left mm-hmm. brain, mm-hmm. left brain meets right brain. Right. So it's like, um, the creative and the business creative and the science, like as two different sides and you're pursuing both at the same time. And I even did that with the, when you have biology and civil engineering, mm-hmm. how more left right brain can you be in that, uh, in that category? And I realized why there weren't a lot of engineers that had any biology background. Mm. And so I was coming from it from that point of view and had a lot of interest in making that a career. Um, but I was making as much in my part-time photography as I was as a junior engineer in an engineering firm here in San Diego. And so um, even though without the, um, the support of my wife's mother, well, my mother-in-law said, do not let him start his own business. Do not let him... Um, work for himself. He needs to have a corporate job and a, and a paycheck to support you. But my, my blessed wife, she said, no, as long as David's happy and he's making some money, then uh, that's what I want him to do. And because that allowed me to freedom to, to really develop my business and, and really go for it. So, I mean, it kind of sounds like it started like a passion, then moved on to maybe like a side gig while you're doing the, uh, the, uh, like pursuing the baseball. the baseball and as well as maybe even into the engineering part. Mm-hmm. And then there was a point where, you know, you said it was, t- it was paying you more. So did you just basically have to make that decision at some point? Like, you know what? Photography is where I'm going. Like I'm, 
I'm done uh-huh. with the engineering. I'm done with the baseball. I'm going to go for this is my this is my 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 calling. Well, the the photography was going more towards a third world experience, being out in the field. And my wife goes, well, we're not going to go to Israel. We're not going to go to uh, to e- Egypt, or we're not going to go to Central America and live there because that would that was where I was combining the the biology with the engineering as a way of solving engineering problems. But that, again, that was more of a third world rather than the high tech world that of of California. So that's where she kind of cut off the the. The engineering, and I said I can make it as a photographer. Hmm. And so you're starting up this photography business. Did you focus mostly on weddings at first because that was kind of where you started? Mm-hmm. Yes. And then um, was is is that how you kind of like kept going with that throughout your photography career, or did, is did you move on to other things? No, I stayed primarily with event uh, photography. Um, I did uh, a number of brochures for engineering uh, companies because I was able to bring some of my engineering into the photography uh, realm. Mm. But uh, no, weddings were allowed me uh, a, a life balance, work-life balance that allowed me to work on a Saturday but then have the rest of the week open mm-hmm. to do the things that I needed to do with raising two daughters and mm. and uh, enjoying, enjoying that part of uh, my life. And three times was a wedding photographer of the year here in San Diego County. So it was yeah, very nice. successful. Yeah, enjoyed and and it paid the bills and allowed me to travel and do the things that um, put my time where it was important. And that was kind of led me to the kind of starting the foundation too. Is that photography allowed me the financial means to to do the initial parts of the foundation. Very interesting. So. Um, I feel like they're in within photography. There's like that event kind of side of it. And then there's like the corporate side, right? Where you're doing more like photography for products or mm-hmm. for headshots or for um, other marketing type things. So um, did you ever, you, you said you dabbled a little bit in the engineering part or the um, more of like, what would you say, like architecture kind of stuff? Because exactly, of, exactly. Yeah, yeah. More corporate. Right. Brochures. and But, you know, you do exact that part of that was executive portraiture. So mm-hmm. did a lot of um, um, beach uh, portraiture enjoyed mm-hmm. that because that was an iconic San Diego scene, mm-hmm. and every family deserved a, a beautiful sunset uh, family portrait. And so did uh, did a lot of uh, a lot of that. And now that I've uh, been in photography now, and my wife says I'm semi-retired, I can <laughs> kind of pick out the projects that I enjoy doing, mm. like pictures for the church, um, pictures for headshots for for people doing stock photography. Uh, travel photography, mm. all the things, because you don't really uh, stop doing that. It's right. it's a lifelong avocation. That was actually what I was going to ask next. Mm. Is is as a professional photographer, do do you still keep it as a hobby as well? Right, like so, if you travel around, do you still bring your camera? Do you still enjoy taking oh, yeah, photos? Oh yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that's I mean that's always very interesting to me because like again, like I do I do some marketing, but I also do a lot of video work, and I have a hard time doing the like I, I do it for business all day. So I, I don't usually, I always forget to take videos when it's for myself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very interesting. Do you ever have that problem with photography? Like where you just, you forget that you're a photographer when you're out doing, you're like, this would make a good photo. Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah. Well, as a, as a professional photographer, you really see things as a photographer. You see the, the way a camera was. And so 
um, my wife has to sometimes get me out of trouble because I'll I'll say to somebody, oh, you, your face would be photographed perfectly from this side, or I see this in you, or, and then and she'd have to say, well, he's a professional photographer. Don't think he's <laughs> being a little creepy. There. Yeah. But that, but it is something that always kind of stimulates. Um, I'm always looking for angles and looking for what would make the best image mm -hmm. because that's what it's all about, what the lighting is. Doing and, this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, in, uh, visually, definitely. Yeah. But, you know, you're looking at cropping, you crop it in, in your mind. And for a couple of years, I taught high school photography mm. and my student with digital photography. And my students couldn't believe that I could take a picture without looking at the back of the camera. You know, that because I knew each time when I was using film that each time I hit the shutter was a dollar. Mm. And so I better get that image the first time. And so you have to learn the tech. You need to learn the technical part of photography mm -hmm. as well as the creative. Mm. And that is a big, big part because there's a real science to photography. But the creative part is what? Is what is where the emotions and the passions go. I think there's a this is a semi-related story. I think one of the most difficult projects that I ever did had to do when I was doing film school type things was they gave me a um, like a Super 8 video camera mm -hmm. with a reel of film in it, and there was no obviously no digital aspects to it at all. Right. And they said, now shoot a film, and it's like. Oh, you get one take. There's no, you have no editing because you, you know, we're not going to cut this mm. film. We're not like, so you get one take at everything. And so they made you really plan out your shots mm -hmm. and you had to really think right. in my head, like, okay, if they come from that, they're going to come from this side. It's going to take two seconds. And then this is going to happen. And then this is going to happen. They're going to say these lines and they better say them right. And then, you know, they're going to walk off to this side that next shot, they need to be coming from this way. Cause if I do it wrong and I watch it back, there's nothing we can do. It's locked in. I bet you so, enjoyed watching the movie 1917. That didn't was see just. It. Oh, you didn't? Because that's seen all it. one continuous shoot, the oh. whole movie. And that's the reason why it won so many Oscar. I may, I may have seen parts of it in film school. That might have yeah, been like a thing it, that it really was a, a cin cinematic uh, achievement that they'd be able to do. And then you see behind the scenes how they did it. It was, mm -hmm. it was just incredible to be able to keep that one sh continuous shoot going it's i mean we got to make cuts like with just like the the cameras were very cool because as soon as you hold the trigger and it takes the and it like starts filming and as soon as you let go it actually makes a clean cut so we were able to do multiple shots like multiple mm -hmm. different scenes but you had you had to like time when you pulled the trigger and when you let go to the frame because otherwise you're not you know right. it, you make the cuts while you're shooting which is <laughs> like terrifying. Right. It, was, it was terrifying, right. but you know, it, it was, but it, it made you learn a lot. And I think that's what you're like, that, that you got to transfer that to your students and that you could do that with like, you know, that you had to be able to do that with your film naturally. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we just, I guess the long story short is like, I guess we have it too easy now. <laughs> yes, it, no, it is. Cause you get that e instant gratification mm -hmm. that were before you had to wait until things were processed. And then you looked back at the, the pictures that you came out with. Right. And it was just so magical at that point. Now you get it right. Oh, okay, now I have it. I can move on. Mm -hmm. But I'll do an event and I'll take one picture of the people and they'll look at me like, the other photographer took 10 pictures. <laughs> Why did you only take one? I said, well, I have what I have. Let's go to the next. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the next scene. Yeah. Because that was part of, um, as a photographer, you kind of plan what the 
album would be, what the mm-hmm. sequence or how pictures interacted with each other mm-hmm. in order for pe- people to buy 10 pictures mm-hmm. rather than to buy one. And you hate to say it from the business point of view, but it all kind of worked together because there were a lot of good photographers that were not good business people and they, they were starving. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of good business people that were average photographers and they made a ton of money because mm-hmm. they knew how to market that and how to how to get your name out there and people wanting and that's an your interesting services. that's an interesting segue there too because I mean again like as we started a marketing company because my my vision was that there's all these very talented people I worked in the film industry first doing businessy stuff for film companies so people would bring us a film idea we'd help um, develop the picture figure like you know attach talent do the uh, the financing do the marketing plan do all those type of things. And it was so interesting working with people that were so creative, right? Because they're screenwriters, they're directors, there's people that like have this artistic vision, but they don't have the business sense. Right. Mm-hmm. And so as a person who had to, I was like the person that was in between those two, right? So mm-hmm. I had to like know how, all the business people, I had to know how to work with creative people and kind of bridge that gap. And I was like, I should do the same thing as for my marketing company. I should, there's so many independent very talented professionals out there that are good at their craft, but they don't necessarily know how to do marketing or how to run their businesses. And so as an independent photographer, I'm sure that there's like, how much percent do you think went into actually taking photos and how much percent of your time went into like doing your marketing, doing your accounting, doing all those other peripheral. Probably, you know, 10, 15% was actually behind the camera. Mm -hmm. And it's even kind of gotten worse now with, digital because you spend so much more time uh, on the computer because now you can fuss with your things and you can, your pictures, your images Mm -hmm. and crop, you know, and do all the things Mm post-production where before we, we would take the pictures and then we'd put them right in. We already had a purposefulness to that. Mm -hmm. So the the computer has just given us much more uh, creative, much more a finish to the final image, which is uh, what it's all about. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, so did, how did you do your own marketing and stuff during that? Did you, did you bring in another company to help you or did you just like do your own marketing and find these clients on your own? Well, it was a word of, a word of, um, word of mouth, mouth is a, such a big part of it. Mm-hmm. We would do different, uh, bridal shows and bridal bazaars. And mm. so we'd get out to the, um, to where the people that were buying the, um, and again, with the wedding, it became, you know, they came, Oh, we have a date. Are you available that date? And so it was, it was a lot more simpler, more direct marketing. And then you got to know the people that did the other services because a wedding has, you know, dozens of different vendors that are part of it. And so we joined different teams and different networks, but being part of professional photographers of San Diego County or a part of the affiliate of professional photographers of America really gave the, the business, uh, classes that you needed mm-hmm. to be a professional because I found it very difficult to charge somebody six thousand mm-hmm. dollars to photograph their wedding to be able to justify that amount of money mm-hmm. or somebody to, to say that's fifty dollars for an eight by ten and and I found that very difficult to sell my own work that way mm-hmm. but then as you start to develop the the business part of it you have to well, I have to make X amount of money mm-hmm. in order to survive. And so because I have to get that, that dollar up, but also I have to get um, the volume enough to be able to, to make 
to make a profit. Mm -hmm. And that became, because there are a lot of starving artists, and that's the reason why they are, because to be able to look somebody in the eye and say it's going to cost you $5,000 or $10,000 or Mm -hmm. that 16 by 20 is going to be worth um, $550, you know, you have to have a lot of self-confidence. And being in business for yourself, it can be, uh, not a big boost, uh, confidence booster, right? You're always being self doubt and mm-hmm. you're always, those things start to, to factor into the equation. If you're only actually truly doing, you know, 10% of your time is photography. Well, you still have to fund yourself for that other 90% of your time. That's doing all those, those other things. You're not getting paid while you're doing your marketing, while you're doing your accounting, while you're doing your administrative work, while you're, you know, looking for clients going to these road shows, you're not getting paid to do that. So you have to make enough during that 10% to cover your whole life. And that's right. that's the interesting thing about service-based industry is like the the, ser- the the service that you provide is usually only a very small percentage of what your time is. Mm-hmm. And um, it's also just, um, it, it's a difficult thing to do. And so it's like, you have to have, be good at the, it's almost like you're a, you're a, you're a creative, you're, you're a artist, but you're also an entrepreneur. Right. No, no and, doubt about that. And so mm-hmm. learning the entrepreneurial side of how to run a business, how to start a business, how to do all that, that's, that's kind of what we like to do on this podcast. Cause there's a lot of so, so many talented people out there that have a passion to do something, but they don't know how to do it. So, or how to be out and be able to promote yourself mm-hmm. and to be able to talk about yourself and to mm-hmm. be part of a networking group and, and learning your, your 32nd, uh, elevator speech and to be able to, to, to create a need in somebody that might not to. And that's what was great about weddings is there was a need. You didn't mm-hmm. have, where with a family portrait, you would have to engage with somebody maybe nine to 10 times before they finally said, oh, well, let's do that family portrait. Right. And then you do that for five, $600. And wow, that's a lot of, you know, it has to pay for a lot of downtime. Mm-hmm. For And it's, it's very interesting because like, in the marketing process, I mean, like, I don't know if I'm getting too far into the weeds on this, but there's there's a part of the marketing process called the education process, where basically you, you have to tell, like, to, like show your clients why what you do is important, like what it is you do and how it would help them. And if they don't know what your your service is very well and they don't know how it will affect them, they're not going to pay for it, right? Mm-hmm. So there's that education process that you have to take people through. With wedding photography, I think you're, you nailed it right on the head is they know... I am having a wedding. I need a photographer. So they're already past that education process. They already are looking to hire. So it's like, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, since it's already, it's the education process has already been done basically. So that's why you're having to spend a lot less time to get those clients versus, you know, someone for a product. Like they don't know if they need a, a a portrait right now. Are you like, you know, what are the different options? Oh, I could get like a, you know, a six by 10. What what would I do with a six? Like how big is six by 10? What would I do with that? Like, I want, I want a big picture to put on my wall. I want an eight by 10. You're going, no, that's 80 by a (laughs) hundred. Right. And so what we used to do is project our images to make them bigger Mm. because sometimes people had trouble scale, scaling an image because an image as a, 30 by 40 inch image looks completely different than it does as a four by six uh, proof or something in Mm -hmm. that. So you're always kind of educating that part. But again, that was what uh, weddings was so nice is that they came, we want to hire you for this date. Mm -hmm. But then you have the question you always were asked, how are you different Mm -hmm. than the other person that, that might have the same equipment? Mm -hmm. What do you, what's your added value? Right. And that, that's where 
that made a big difference. Because some people would call you and say, oh, because of a referral from a friend, I want to book you for whatever. <laughs> but then at the bridal shows, it would be, okay, now apples and apples, how, mm -hmm. how do you compare? You're probably not the only wedding photographer there at the bridal. No, there'd be events. 20, 30 mm -hmm. of them. And it's easy to book a wedding for $500, but mm -hmm. you spend $500 just getting there at the wedding. You know, right. you're not making any money right. at $500. Yeah. So each increment above $500 are now where you're starting into the profit area. Mm -hmm. And typically your your costs were 20, 30% mm -hmm. of what your, um, the money that you brought in went to overhead mm -hmm. for for that. So that gave you that. So you, we had a good profit margin mm -hmm. built into that, mm -hmm. but you had to put the time into it also. Yeah. So there's a very that was strict, the hard part is paying yourself when it came down to and it. And there's a very strict time limitation because it's like, I need you for a whole day on this day. So mm -hmm. it's like, you can only have one client that day. And then, you know, you're going to have a couple of days of admin and finding clients. So it's like, you can only take a couple clients a week max probably. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting. Yes. And so how did you transition from being a full-time photographer into starting this foundation? Well, it, it started with my wife, um, my past wife, Helen. Mm -hmm. And at the age 35, she had her first diagnosis of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And so as she went through, and, and she was an emergency room nurse. And so she was very dedicated to the medical solution to um, the breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And back then, um, not a lot of young women were getting breast cancer. And, and when I grew up, nobody had a mom that had a disease or illness or, you know, moms were indestructible. Mm. And then that was kind of the transition from the baby boomers in that, uh, in that era. So when she, at 35, she was, which I was right at the the peak of my photography business. Mm -hmm. But when she became ill and started needing, you know, somebody to go with her to um, appointments and, and, you know, just being there to be a support, I was able to utilize the time that I had free with my being my, in my own business. I wasn't committed to a person for a certain time period. Mm -hmm. So I was available not only for her, but also for my two daughters. Mm. And so that became, um, a great way for me to share that because in the when it's all said and done it's not how much money you made it's you know the connections that you've made and making her life as meaningful as as possible because when you deal with with cancer mm -hmm. with breast cancer you're dealing with uh, mortality you're dealing with illness you're dealing with um what identity as from your gender point of view mm -hmm. um and to be able to uh, go through the ups and downs of the the treatment that uh, that she went through, mm -hmm. and so she survived that uh, first um, first bout. But now that we've learned, about twenty to forty percent of uh, breast cancer comes back mm -hmm. within five years, mm -hmm. and when it comes back, it's there's no real surviving so much the, the second time when it comes back yeah. because that meant that the cancer spread to other areas. Right. And that's what, because normally breast cancer itself doesn't kill you. It's what, it's where it spreads to in other parts of your body. Mm. goes to the brain or goes to a, a part, um, an organ that is necessary right. for your survival. Right. And so she ended up passing when she was uh, 48 years old. Mm. 
and um, and my daughters were teenagers. Mm-hmm. And by that time, um, I had made in my mind kind of a commitment that that there was a big gap in the breast cancer uh, industry, and they dealt mostly with the treatment and mm-hmm. and the surviving that. But there was nothing about prevention or what that the daughter of a mother that has breast cancer, now she has an elevated risk like my daughters did. Mm -hmm. And my daughters were terrified. Mm -hmm. They were saying, Dad, I'm going to get breast cancer also. Or as they got a little older, the medical community said, basically gave them pity and said, come back come back when you're 40 to find out whether you have breast cancer or not, when you can get a mammogram. And as a dad, I said, that was really not the way it should be, especially with my daughters. Right. I wanted, let's look at what they can do to prevent it. Especially since your wife had it before the age of 40. If she waited till she was 40 to find out, like, I mean. She never would have made it. Yeah. And, and so, but the, the medical community was really clueless on prevention. They were, you know, well, when you have it, it's early detection mm-hmm. and early detection. But what we found out with prevention is that it had been living in your body for eight to 10 years before even earliest detection could detect it. Mm. So there was an eight to 10 year window mm-hmm. that if your body is starting to uh, go towards um, a cancer state mm-hmm. to in order for it to grow enough to be even uh, detected or big enough that it could metastasize, that there are a lot of things that you could be doing for uh, prevention. Mm-hmm. And that, and then also we found out that less than 10% of breast cancer is genetic mm-hmm. because the medical community wants you to think that it is genetic mm-hmm. so that your victim, oh, you, your cards came up uh, bad, mm-hmm. you know, but one out of eight. So they would look at a room of 10 women and say, one, out, one or two of you are going to get breast cancer. And so it terrified women. Right. You know, women were, oh, you know, what? there's nothing I can do, so I might as well just, you know, live my life and, and not see if there's something I can do to be proactive. Mm-hmm. But once we started researching it, that we found over 80% is lifestyle choices and behaviors mm. and things that you can do to lower your risk of, of breast cancer. And well, that, what would a couple of those, what would be the, the couple that you would say you would recommend here for people that are listening? Well, uh, two of the, two of the biggest ones is, um, avoiding, uh, radiation to your chest mm-hmm. because especially young women, uh, they, until you have your first child, your breast tissue is immature. So if you're getting radiation, like an early mammogram, mm. then you would actually be absorbing a lot more of the radiation than what a woman that would be older that had children that have more mature. And the other one that, that we learned about that, would, that very few other people learned about, knew about was vitamin D3. Mm. Vitamin D3 is something that you get from the sun. But if you're not out in the sun, you you have to supplement to do that. And research here at University of California at San Diego showed that they could that you could lower your risk of breast cancer by up to 77 to 80% if you kept your vitamin D3 level at an optimal blood serum level. And that 
um, that, and also the reoccurrence of breast cancer by up to 50%. Mm. And those were numbers that nobody knew anything about, but that vitamin D research came because there's not a lot of people that benefit from vitamin D production. Right. There's not pharmaceutical companies that are trying to sell you the latest treatment, this latest generic mm-hmm. uh, genetic treatment. But vitamin D3 is very, very easy. Other one is stress. Mm. Because the big part of prevention of cancer, and especially breast cancer, is stress to your immune system. Mm. And that's where vitamin D helps, is it strengthens your vitamin D3, uh, your your immune system. That's the reason why when uh, President Trump had his um, treatment for COVID-19, vitamin D3 was part of that, mm. that cocktail that he got. But the key part was keeping your blood level at an optimal level. Mm-hmm. But um, And there is a huge epidemic of vitamin D3 deficiency. Mm. So, so the people needed to supplement that. So we talk about that. We talk about um, what type of a birth control that you take. Mm-hmm. Are you putting artificial estrogen in your body through progesterone type of birth control that that is really affecting your cells in your breast tissue? Because mm-hmm. your breast tissue is always, um, is always uh, regenerating. It's a very quick regenerational cell. Mm. I know sometimes my daughters tell me that I know too much about uh, breast breast tissue and mm-hmm. breast cancer in that part. But it really is just very fascinating from because men are 1% of, of breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So those are the things that we talk about. And when we would go out to college um, events and outreach program, we'd have a, uh, a back a banner that would say, um, these are the prevention things. What, what are the things that you can do to lower your breast cancer? Let's have you make a, um, a, that if you can change one of those behaviors, if you can have not three drinks a day, but you can cut it down to one drink a day or mm-hmm. once a week, mm-hmm. you can lower your risk of breast cancer by up to 50%. Mm-hmm. So the, the girls would come and they would pledge saying, I'm going to get uh, eight hours of sleep at night. I'm going to lower my um, my alcohol. I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to, I'm going to find out what my vitamin D3 level is to supplement that. I'm going to eat healthy. Mm-hmm. So those are things that, that, we, that we learned were very vital ways that a young woman and any person can lower their risk of uh, cancer or breast cancer. It's interesting because a, a lot of those things sound like they would help your general overall health also. So it's not like, you know, there's, you're only, it's only good to do those things, you know, as a, as a woman or someone who's worried about breast cancer, but those just sound like good things to do already. Living healthy is your body has a chance because everybody has cancer cells in their bodies because um, parts of their cells get, um, get die and they fermate and they can, and if they continue to be supported, then they become rapidly growing as part of a mutation to their, to their, um, to their genetic material. And so everybody has cancer in their body, but it's a matter of how your immune system can deal with it. So all the things that you can do to increase your body's ability to defend itself, the better 
the better it can be. Mm -hmm. And when cancer starts to take that foothold in that eight to 10 years before it can be uh, identified by early detection, it starts to bring blood vessels to it. Mm -hmm. So it brings different signatures to whether you have like a thermogram or something. It can, it can say, okay, your body, you have a hot spot in your body mm -hmm. or there's a reason you're not feeling so well that that can be identified. And then you can do um, proactive, you can do detox things that, that can alleviate that hot spot in your body mm -hmm. or take um, uh, supplementations that'll uh, keep the blood flowing, the, the not to flow to the cancer cells. Right. So there's things that you can do if you know that you are high risk or mm -hmm. that you have the precursors. Because mm -hmm. there's one of the things we found out there were three precursors to uh, breast cancer. Mm. And one is um, estrogen dominance. So if your body holds a lot of estrogen, then it's going to affect your your breast cells and, so, and it's going to be nourished in a way that it's going to be allowed to be rapidly growing. Mm -hmm. The other is chronic inflammation. Uh, you've heard that um, going to your dentist and getting the abscess of your tooth taken care of because that um, that bacteria that gets from your teeth into your bloodstream mm -hmm. affect your immune system because it has to fight that chronic inflammation, right? Uh, that infection, and so the the cancer cells kind of go, oh wow, we got shade here, we got cover mm -hmm. because that that's a big that's a bad. Uh, infection up there. Mm -hmm. And so the body deals with that and the cancer starts to take a foothold in your body. So chronic inflammation and then lymphatic congestion. So your lymphatic system it, through from uh, massages takes all the bad um, toxic material out of your out of your blood, out of your body, and it goes out through your your armpits and other lymphatic areas. Mm. And if your body is not able to get rid of the toxic material, then that toxic environment affects your cells and they become anaerobic, they become uh, precursor to cancerous cells. Mm. So all those things were really fascinating and it became a great story um, in that my daughters were, st were teenagers. They, mm. were, they were in their early teens. So the, the things that we were finding out directly affected them. Right. And so as a dad, that became very pleasing to know that that we could help um, um, somebody like my daughter who had that lost their mom to breast cancer because mm -hmm. we'd be at college outreaches and a, a girl would come up to and she'd look us in the eye and she goes, nobody has ever given me any tools on how to deal with this. Mm -hmm. My mom has breast cancer. My aunt has breast cancer. And I just see myself as a victim. Wow, you are providing us hope. You are providing us a um, a means to deal with that information, mm -hmm. rather than freaking out. Because um, actress like Angelina Jolie, she she wasn't so fearful of breast cancer mm -hmm. that she had her breast cut off. But a lot of people don't know that she also had to have her ovaries taken out. Mm -hmm. Because the, the estrogen that's coming into your body has to go somewhere, mm. and so rather than people were not just okay with being a victim, they wanted to be proactive. Right. So our message had a very uh, uh, proactive, very hopeful, a very creative way that 
that you can prevent breast cancer. Very nice. So I think all that's very important and I'm glad that, you know, we can do our little bit to share that, to get that information out. Um, what are the next steps for the organization? What are your goals? Like, what do you, what are you, what are you hoping to do in the next, you know, next year? Well, one of the things that when we would go out to our outreach that the young women were going, well, we don't know what our vitamin D3 level is because mm-hmm. that 40 to 60 nanograms per milliliter is critical, mm-hmm. but it takes more than what you would get in your normal daily multivitamin. Mm-hmm. And so I was giving uh, blood at the San Diego Blood Bank a uh, couple years ago, and I've given over eight gallons of blood because I'm an O negative, so they mm. call me all the time saying, mm-hmm. come on in. And so I, I asked them, I said, well, I would really like to know what my vitamin D3 level is. And they go, well, we can't do that for you. They would tell me what my what my um, uh, glycerides, my my cholesterol level would be, what my my heartbeat, you know, they'd give me all that information, but they wouldn't give me that cr- critical number for vitamin D3. Mm-hmm. So one of the projects that we're working with is collaborative with the San Diego Blood Bank that if you come in and you donate blood, you can find out what's your vitamin D3 level. And if it's low, you can up your supplementation so that you can get it to that optimal because everybody should be at that optimal level. Mm-hmm. And if not, you're not giving your body the tools in order to for it to, to work effectively mm-hmm. in your immune system. Right, and that's what supplies. Uh, so, so that's one project that mm-hmm. that we're um, uh, very uh, excited about, and the other is really getting out to the different colleges to be able to um, the young, this millennials, this college age women, mm-hmm. they want to be involved, they want to be proactive, mm-hmm. and so to be able to give them the tools to kind of create their own Helen Knoll Foundation or breast cancer prevention club on campus mm-hmm. so that they can get the word out to the, the women that you can be proactive and there is a positive, especially for the women that have a family history of breast cancer. That's beautiful. Well, um, I think that if, if, if someone wanted to find the organization to be able to help out, to donate, to um, you know, volunteer support, our- to volunteer, um, how would they find you? Uh, HelenKnollFoundation.org. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a website there. We uh, Facebook, all the social media type of uh, connections that young that young women work, but primarily through our website. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's nice about our website too is that we have a list of of people that you can contact that are resources. Mm-hmm. One being my daughter, mm-hmm. who is now a, a therapist. So you can actually call a, a daughter of that lost her mom to breast cancer mm-hmm. and to be able to go through that process mm-hmm. because the first thing you find out when your mom has breast cancer, there's a grieving process. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, my mom's going to die. My mom is going to be sick. Mm-hmm. You're going to see her lose her hair. Mm-hmm. You're going to see her do um, go through chemo mm-hmm. and just become sickly, and it's going to yeah. scare the, the heck out of you. That was and, probably one of the most terrifying times in my life is when my, when my mom had breast cancer and she oh, had to shave yeah. her head and mm-hmm. like all, or like her hair was falling out and she had her head shaved and that was like, you know, 
like and you want to be a warrior difficult. and you want to support her mm-hmm. and you want to to mm-hmm. be a team you mm-hmm. want to do the walks you want to be the awareness mm-hmm. but there are things that you can actually be doing yourself mm-hmm. to to lower your risk and right. that would make your mom that has breast cancer so much relieve her mm-hmm. to knowing that her daughter is not going to have to go through the same thing that she right had to go through. It's probably also a great, a great resource for the mother who's has the cancer to be able to know what her daughter's going to go through and like how to, how she can be supportive and you know, all that as well. So you'd be able to talk about nutrition, talk about right. birth control, mm-hmm. talk about what she could do. So she's not, uh, elevating her risk because mm-hmm. if you're, if you have, um, a first generation for, uh, breast cancer, your mother has it, your aunt has it, mm-hmm. your risks are high. You have to really pay attention to all your um, lifestyle choices and behaviors. Right. You have to care about how much you drink. How If you, you definitely don't smoke, don't be overweight, mm-hmm. because those are all just things that are going to elevate what you have as that by having a first-generational mother having it. Right. So that's, that's, a, big, that's a big part of that. Definitely. Well, David, thank you so much for coming in and sitting down with us today. Um, and, and I just, I, I'm happy to help. I want to help, like help out any way I can. And uh, I hope that uh, people get well, getting this message. the message out is, yeah. in a, and the funny thing you were asking about the early parts where I was a, a biological studies uh, in high in college. And now it really has come back into the, the prevention part of the understanding of the immune system and to be able to get this message out to young women that there is, mm-hmm. that there hope that they don't have to be just the victim. Yes. And, uh, um, that's a real positive message. And my daughters have really thrived mm-hmm. as a result of that message. And they don't fear breast cancer like they did initially. Right. And it's one worth a message worth getting out there. Yes, very much so. And as a dad, it makes me very, very happy. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much, Jeff.